not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Well, as we have seen, there are um, <clears throat> uh, insights here in Isaiah 53 that uh, are quite astonishing as far as the sufferings of Christ are concerned. As has often been said, it almost looks as if those who are speaking in this particular servant song of Isaiah, Isaiah's got four servant songs, and they all, the reason why they're called that is because the word, my servant, occurs in them. But this is the longest one, and it's the one that is most detailed about the sufferings of Jesus, but also of the glory that was going to be his subsequently. The song itself is divided into five sections, and each of these sections gives particular focus to certain aspects of the final day of his earthly experience before he died. Uh, verses 7 to 9 are the fourth paragraph, and it mentions things that are not mentioned in the other paragraphs. In this fourth paragraph, we can see there is a reference to the silence of Jesus and also in verse 9 to the effect that he would be a rich man in his, with a rich man in his death. And these uh, details are not mentioned in the other uh, four sections. So each of these sections is like, a, I suppose, like a telescope. Uh, looking at a distance at a future event and bringing it um, uh, right close up to the person with the telescope so that he doesn't need it anymore. And a spiritual telescope, as it were, can look back the way and look ahead. And here it looks back and conveys us right to the cross and what was happening when Jesus suffered there. Although uh, verse 7 begins a new section in this song, there is a connection to the previous verse, verse 6, and that is that both of them mention sheep. Uh, both of them use sheep as an illustration, except the illustrations are very different. Uh, in verse 6, the picture of a sheep is, is a bad one. 
of a sheep that, as we know, willingly and perhaps foolishly wanders off by itself into the place of danger. And this particular tendency is not just a feature of one person, it's a feature of everyone. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And that's the negative use of the illustration of sheep. But then in verse 7, it's turned round, and the illustration, instead of focusing on uh, the sinner, it actually is used to describe the Savior. And uh, the way it's used to describe him is what we could call docility, or a sheep's apparent willingness to suffer. Uh, I have never seen a sheep being slaughtered, so I have no idea what it looks like. But uh, the prophet here uh, evidently had and just points out that for whatever reason is the case, that the sheep is silent uh, before those who shear it, and a lamb that's led to the slaughter just seems to walk there. And it's perhaps a strange illustration to use of Christ, because he is the Almighty God. And who can force him to go anywhere? But here he is, in this prophecy, he has just been led like a powerless lamb to the slaughter. We have to um, ask why. Why did Jesus go silently to the cross? And that's an interesting question. I suppose another question that comes up here is how many judgments are there? There is the judgment at which he has silent. Indeed, we know there's three of them at which he was silent. But there's, there's also, I think, another judgment here. And, and the, the, hopefully explain that in a minute. But who is speaking in verse 8? I mean, it's a question that gets asked in verse 8. Who is speaking? Well, I think the clue as to who is speaking in verse 8 is found in the last two words. My people. So, in verse 8, the Father speaks. And he speaks in connection to the silence of his son. 
and gives his verdict. He asks a question. And the question basically is, who thought about what was happening? Obvious implication is, he thought about it, but that he expected others to think about it. And in verse 9, we get his, uh, the father's, response to the judgment that was handed out on Jesus. Those who put him to death had a plan. A plan for Jesus and a plan for his body where they were going to put it. But their judgment was overruled by another judgment. So we'll think about them. So that's why I've called it two judgments. Two judgments taking place. First of all, I want us to think about what I could call the visible judgment the one that uh, history records. And then there is what you could call uh, the, the question of the, of the judge at the other trial. Because Jesus was facing two judges, or two kinds of judges here. There were those who were judging him and coming to their conclusion about him being a false messiah. And there was the one that was judging him because he was a true messiah. And both these judgments are happening here. And so secondly, we'll think about the ignorance of his generation. And then lastly, what happened to his body? The, the question of his body is important because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that it's part of the gospel. He says that at the start of that chapter. For I delivered unto you that Christ died according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that on the third day he rose again. So his burial not just the mere fact of it, but the significance of it is part of the gospel. What does his burial say? It's not just a matter of the wonder of fulfilled prophecy, but his burial actually says something about what heaven thought of him. So we'll think of that uh, thirdly. Now, the, the visible judgment. Well, the Gospels tell us there were at least three. We could turn them into four if we wanted because he appeared before Pilate twice. But uh, the three judgments are the one before the Sanhedrin 
on the one before Herod, on the one before Pilate. And what is significant about each of the trials is the silence of Jesus. He only, he's not totally silent, but we could imagine that anyone who would be on trial for his life would want to say something. But Jesus just persists in being silent. And I think it's quite useful just to read what the Gospels say about them. And the trial before the Sanhedrin, well, that's the Jewish trial. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 26. And it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they may put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So on that occasion, before the Sanhedrin, Jesus said nothing until he was put on oath by the high priest. And then all he said to the high priest basically was, uh, in a short time, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. I mean, that's not a reference to the Day of Judgment. I mean, that's a reference to something that's going to happen during the lives of these people. That Jesus is going to be at the right hand of power. And they're going to see the signs of it. And, of course, one of the signs of it was the Day of Pentecost. But... Anyway, while they were making all their false accusations and so on, he just said nothing. And then there's the trial before Herod. And, um, and Herod, of course, he was some fun. And he thought it would be quite good to have uh, a little time of humor with Jesus, dress him up as a king and so on. When Herod saw Jesus, this is in Luke chapter 23, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had a long desire to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he but he, that's Jesus, made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. 
Then arraying him in a splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. But there was a lot of noise in Herod's palace. There was one person saying nothing, and that was Jesus. Not one single word of self-defense. Even though everything that was being said about him was all lies. And then there's the third trial of his trials, and that's Pilate. Pilate, the representative of Roman justice, which prided itself on being totally accurate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The silence of Jesus. It's something that's so astonishing that the Old Testament wants us to recognize it. And his silence is remarkable, isn't it? Because it was so unjust. But not only was it unjust, it was so persistent. And it's not just persistent, but it was exceptionally cruel. He was beaten in each of these courtrooms. And yet throughout it all, silent. Why is he silent? Well, we know the answer to that question, why he's silent. He's already submitted himself to a higher plan. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, he has humbled himself and become obedient even to the death of the cross. And didn't matter what anyone said, that's where he was going. The death of the cross. Here we have a silent Savior revealing very clearly his dedication to his Father's will. It used to be a song years ago, Silence is Golden. Well, here's one silence that was golden. At the same time, he showed great dignity, didn't he? Dignity, we could say, in the face of the collapse of all kind of human justice. Not one piece of evidence was presented against him. And yet... He remains silent. But Paul, writing about it later on, reminds Timothy that Jesus, when he was there before Pilate, he made a good confession. 
And of course, that leads us to ask, what confession? What did he confess before Pilate? I'd read what um, Calvin said about this. This is what he said. Christ made his confession before Pilate, not in a multitude of words, but in reality, that is, by undergoing a voluntary death. For although Christ chose to be silent before Pilate, rather than speak in his own defense, because he had come thither devoted already to a certain condemnation, Yet in his silence there was a defense of his doctrine not less magnificent than if he had defended himself with a loud voice. He ratified it by his blood and by the sacrifice of his death better than he could have ratified it by his voice. He wasn't condemned really or ultimately, we should say, by his earthly judges. He could have dismissed them with ease. But he was about to be, as it were, taking the place of the condemned by another judge, the Heavenly Father. Now, what if Jesus had spoken? What if he had stood up and, and just basically proved that all his accusers were totally wrong and just showed to each of his, these three judges that against him they had no power? What would have happened then? Well, there would be no gospel. If he had chosen to free himself from the, not just the chains of these earthly rulers, but if he had chosen not to go ahead with the, the cross, well, what gospel would there be? There wouldn't be one. So... When we, hear sage, when we hear Jesus say nothing, we should shout out, well done. Even although all the accusations were totally wrong, he had to remain silent. Sometimes our Savior has to speak. But there was a time when he was meant to say nothing. And therefore we should admire him, commend him. So that's the visible judgment. It was a terrible experience for him. He's a God of truth. And he was surrounded by lies. He's the God of order, surrounded by anarchy.
He's a God of love, surrounded by malice. But he said nothing. And the reason why he said nothing was because he had a message, a gospel that he wanted to be proclaimed. We've no idea what his silence cost him. It cost him everything. But if he hadn't been silent, there would be nothing for us. So, as we look through the telescope, look back 2,000 years, we say to him, don't we? Well done. And that leads us to think about the next point, the ignorance of a generation, verse 8. Because with the, it says there, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. There's a different speaker here now, God the Father speaking, and he gives his opinion of the, the three trials. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And the the word oppression could include the idea of imprisonment, confinement. And while there's no actual statement in the Gospels that says he was so literally imprisoned, but it, it does sort of include the idea that he's denied the rights of self-defense. And it's, it's oppression. It's been shoved down on him. It's coming with force. And it, it is coming with force, isn't it? It's coming with the, the force of the religious Jews. And, it, and it's coming with all the force of the, of the Roman Empire. It was represented there by Pilate. And, and this oppression, I mean, a normal person can't, couldn't resist it. It would be crushing him. By oppression and their decision of judgment, he was taken away. Of course, that means he was taken away to the place of punishment. And what happened at the place of punishment should have caused his generation to ask why. Because something happened at his punishment that was far more severe than what happened to the, to the others who were crucified beside him. The appearance of Jesus on the cross, when his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, that it should have caused people to ask, well, that the punishment that this individual is undergoing is far more severe than anybody else has ever known. 
And when you're looking at such a site, the normal reaction would be to ask, well, why is this happening? And especially when it happens to him, because as we're told there in verse 8, he has done no violence, and neither has there been any deceit in his mouth. Everything he has said and done has been ideal and perfect, and yet here he is suffering to such an extent that no one has ever seen such suffering before. And, and that, that could be visibly seen. The, 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 the effects on his body of his sufferings was far more than a mere crucifixion. And God basically asks, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? And... and there's a certain sense in which we shouldn't be too surprised that his generation didn't ask any questions because his own disciples didn't believe him, did they? When he told them repeatedly that he was going to go to the cross, they refused to accept it. And they even did their best to stop it happening. Nobody thought of asking why. Why is this so severe? I mean, what question should they have asked? Well, surely the question they should have asked, given all their background was, and especially as they had this chapter in their background, they should have said to themselves, is this the sin bearer? Has he arrived? Has he come? The only ones that did ask that question, of course, were the penitent thief beside him and a few soldiers sitting at the foot of the cross. But as for this generation, well, they preferred to keep their Passover. A meaningless ritual. The real Passover lamb was suffering on the cross and they were running about bothered about a ritual that had passed away. But none of them asked this question. And yet it was obvious all the evidence was there. The intensity of his sufferings when he cried, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's not good for us to imagine the physical sufferings of Jesus. Because the reality is we cannot imagine them. Seeing a film of somebody getting crucified doesn't tell us anything about the depth of a Savior's suffering. In effect, they're almost a distraction. He suffered far more than anyone can tell. But it should have made people ask a question. And God the Father asks it. 
who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Who is it that struck him? God the Father did. Poured his wrath on him. And while he was doing that, no one paid any attention. What can God do to vindicate his son? Well, that leads us to the third point. What happened to his body? Well, the powers that be, they had a plan for his body. It would just go where every other crucified person's body went. It would have gone where the penitent criminal's body went. It would have gone in their intentions where the impenitent criminal's body went. Some obscure place, some sort of despised place. A place not worth visiting, a place not even naming, a place not where civilized people wouldn't even discuss. That would have been the plan they had for the body of Jesus. The ultimate proof of his condemnation. But God the Father wasn't going to allow that, was he? And he actually announced it centuries before it happened. And providentially, we can put it this way, there arose in the heart of this man, Joseph of Arimathea, a desire to do something about the body of Jesus. I mean, he was a counselor. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He would know where the burial place usually would be. But because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he had access to Pilate, the only man that could do something about the, the decision about where the body of Jesus should go. And of course, as we know, Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. And he had listened to Jesus and he just found himself doing something that day that he wouldn't have dreamed that morning he would be doing. We know that he went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus, but whose power is at work in Joseph's heart? God the Father is. I mean, God the Father had this plan, this intention of honoring his son when he died. And instead of using what we might call the most devoted 
disciple. He used one who up until that moment had hidden that he was a disciple. And yet into his heart came the the pressure of the pressure, the intensity of heaven. And when that comes into someone's heart, doesn't matter what their past has been. They'll do what they would never have imagined themselves doing. And there's Joseph. And he goes. And he gets the body of Jesus. And the same kind of heavenly pleasure also operated within the heart of Pilate. Because why would Pilate, of all people, bother about the body of a condemned criminal? Pilate would have never have done this before, and he would never do it again. But on this occasion, he finds himself just doing it. And he releases the body of Jesus into Joseph's care. And it just so happens providentially that right beside the place where Jesus is crucified, there's a garden owned by Joseph. And for all we know, Joseph might have been looking at Calvary. Who knows? That's where his garden was. That's where his house was. And that's where his tomb was. And he went and and pleaded for the body of Christ. And he got it. And instead of his body being treated as utterly contemptible, it was treated as very dignified because he found it was found in a rich man's tomb. And the amount of ointment that Joseph and Nicodemus put on Jesus, it's so copious that it's the usual amount that was given to a royal person. And here's Jesus, Jesus the outcast, buried with royal accompaniment. And God the Father, the heavenly judge, the one who had caused him to pay the penalty for sin, ensured that his burial was a vindication. And people shouldn't merely ask, why did he suffer so badly? But why was he buried in such a dignified way? 
And the answer, of course, is that he's the Messiah. And his burial at the same time was the bottom of his descent. And it was his first step on his ascent. And from now on, his glory all the way. For Isaiah 53 to be fulfilled, because it's only, Isaiah 53 is only about two things. The suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. And the only thing that can be between, that can be placed between his sufferings and his glory is his burial. Nothing else can be placed there. And that's why his burial matters for the gospel. He may have died as a condemned criminal, but he wasn't buried as one. And God the Father, the real judge, gave his verdict. This man is innocent. This man has done no violence. This man had no deceit in his mouth. That's Jesus, silent Savior, the one who said nothing in his defense, who endured the shame of the contempt of the earthly rulers, who suffered the awfulness of the wrath of God against his people, who breathed his last and whose body and as he said there when he was born as Hebrews tells us when he was coming into the world he said to God the Father a body you've prepared for me and when it came to the end of his earthly journey the one who gave him the body protected the body and from then on, a few hours later, he's going to rise again in that same body. But his burial is very important. Shall we pray? Lord, we marvel at the, the way that Jesus did things. So revolutionary, said nothing in his defense, withstood all the false accusations against him. As Peter tells us, when he was reviled, he reviled not again, but entrusted himself to him that judges righteously. And he left his case in your hands. And although he suffered so badly, 
so badly that anyone who cared to look should have asked why. Although he suffered so badly, you took care of the body you gave him and ensured that they would see no corruption. But even after he died, it saw no abuse at all. And we thank you, Lord, for that, that his burial declares his innocence. And we just ask you, Lord, to help us to value that he was so honored. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to appreciate the cross and all that happened there. For your own name's sake, amen. We'll sing.